You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. The teaching text today comes from Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how, how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. This is our uh, third worship gathering today. Uh, in between the last one and this one, Carlos changed into an identical outfit to me, but slightly better looking. So I'm feeling a high degree of insecurity as we begin. Um, just felt like I should confess that. Uh, so r- recently I was on my way out of my apartment building and Will, my super, was leaning against the wall smoking a cigarette and I went past him, hey Will, what's up man, how you doing? Uh, I didn't mean for him to talk back to me or even necessarily answer it, but he took that as an invitation to have some company on his smoke break, so he stopped me on my way to work and said, Tyler, come over here, man. And then after a little small talk, he starts telling me about all the secrets the government is keeping from us about alien life and about several different UFO sightings that the White House has covered up in recent years and about a few people who have actually left this planet to live with extraterrestrials on another unnamed planet. And I was polite. Really? I had no idea. That's that's very interesting. And that's actually kind of what it feels like to be a pastor on Easter Sunday. Like a whole bunch of people get dressed up in their periwinkle sweaters and penny loafers to go to brunch, but on the way to brunch, you stop and interrupt them to tell them a story they have no intention of believing. And it sounds like as much nonsense as extraterrestrials on another planet, just in my case, it's a first century peasant who pushed back his own gravestone. And that matters for you now. It matters more profoundly than anything's ever mattered before or ever will matter again. I think most people assume the biblical resurrection story is just like an easily dismissed fairy tale. But the closer you look, the more you'll realize that that's not actually the case. 
and I won't bore you with all the facts. I mean, if, if you look at the most common theories about what could have happened, they don't stand up logically or contextually. In fact, uh, the intellectual Albert Henry Ross wrote a book in the 1930s titled Who Moved the Stone, which he, an outspoken atheist, set out to disprove the resurrection once and for all, right? Like someone's got to put this hoax to bed. And then he found the evidence for resurrection so compelling that on the way to research his own book, he actually converted to faith in Jesus and wrote a very different kind of book. But I'm not particularly interested in presenting to you the facts like you're some kind of jury or this is a grad school classroom because I'm 12 years into being a pastor now and I'm still yet to meet anyone whose faith in Jesus rests solely on intellectual conviction alone. And in fact, the earliest reference to the resurrection is the Apostle Paul's in his first letter to the Corinthians, and he makes no mention of the empty tomb at all. He doesn't unpack the evidence or defend the reality. He doesn't talk about the grave clothes or the empty tomb or any of the facts because it's never been an absent corpse that convinced anybody. It's always been the presence of the living God in our empty lives. You see, most of us, we tend to interact with the biblical story when we're young enough to feel really big and the story to seem really small. We hear stories like Noah's Ark and Daniel in the lion's den and God on a cross and then an empty grave. When we're so young that we feel big, we feel like the world is our oyster and we're the star of the show and that life goes on forever. But as we get older, if we're paying attention at all, we get smaller and smaller and smaller in our own eyes. And in the last year, every last one of us has gotten smaller. Last Easter was the day that I hit the COVID wall. And I will spare you the details because I've told the story before, but the, the bullet point is that I was walking around the block distracting my kids with a scooter ride while my wife hid eggs in our quarantine apartment for them to hunt. And as I was walking down the sidewalk, I just burst into tears. There I was, the pastor celebrating the resurrection crying in public when I was supposed to be parenting. So much for eggs Benedict, right? And maybe you're not as dramatic as me. I mean, to be honest, few people are, but we've all grown a little bit smaller this year. This global virus, regardless of your relationship to it, has uh, confronted all of us with a profound loss of control. It's exposed our coping mechanisms and our pain points and our inability to ride our own preferred future into being. And so I find myself wondering if this year we might be a little smaller and the same story might look a little bigger from this vantage point. And I wonder if we're small enough this year not to behold this event as the enlightened few who are floating above it and dissecting it, but maybe as those within the story, the human and the needy and the desperate and the hoping, staring into this black empty tomb, wondering right alongside Peter, what happened here? And what might it mean? And so today I want to talk to you about three themes, that I believe that resurrection means something significant about suffering, about desire, and about shame. So first, let's talk about suffering. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. So resurrection is about suffering before it's about anything else. Because this is a funeral. They're on their way to a funeral. That's the setting where resurrection happens. What was the last funeral you attended? Can you just go back to that place in your imagination? For me, it was uh, the springtime not too long ago. I remember it was raining that mid-morning. And I was carrying the eulogy. I had jotted down a few words to share at this funeral. And delivering a eulogy is 
a strange experience. It's like no other pastoral moment. Because on a Sunday morning, I often come with words and this awareness that these words might just create the container for encounter. They might create a space where a person can meet face to face with God, and that's where the magic happens. Or when I'm doing a wedding, I show up thinking, these words create the container for celebration. I'm aware, no one's there to listen to me talk, they're there to party. And yet these words create the context for that party that make it beautiful and make it holy and make it worth celebrating. But when you go to a funeral, you're carrying words, but you're so aware that they can create no container. That there is nothing to say that reframes this event. It's more like, look, somebody's got to say something, so it might as well be you, man. But whatever you've jotted down on that cute little paper of yours, Reverend, it holds no power here. It is pinned to the floor by the weight of the grief in this room. There is no injustice like death. We just all sit there robbed of the most precious thing, of the life of a father or a mother or a son or a daughter or a friend or a colleague or a mentor. There is no injustice like death, and there are no words that can change that. Leo Tolstoy uh, found instant fame as a writer. His first three novels were huge successes like few other Uh, writers before him. He was talented and disciplined and driven and happy. And then his brother Nicholas died at just 37. And he was forced to witness a public execution in Paris a few months after that. And this really shook him up because death, something he had never thought that hard about up to that point, suddenly now confronted him and was everywhere he looked right at midlife. And so he wrote this, my question, that at which the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer. It was, what will come of what I'm doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Tolstoy, the family of the dying, the pastor walking to a funeral home in the rain, and the women carrying burial spices to the tomb to honor their rabbi were all asking the same question. Is there anything I have that death cannot take? The most scandalous part of Jesus to modern ears is his claim to be Lord. The most scandalous part of Jesus to their ancient ears was that he, the Lord, would suffer. A God who cries at funerals? A God who bleeds when he's cut? A God who's publicly executed? God on a throne? I'm sure. God on a cross? Never. And I understand why it's such a shock that God would suffer, but I also think that a God who doesn't suffer probably isn't a God worth trusting. Because without the courage to take his own medicine, to crawl down into this world and to feel the darkness with the same helplessness as the rest of us, how could God be trusted? How could God be relatable? Without suffering, how could God possibly help anyone else cope with suffering? How could God tell a story that our real lives and experiences can actually fit within? In his memoir, uh, Elie Wiesel tells of his experience as a Jewish teenage prisoner in Auschwitz. And every time a prisoner um, was hanged for some offense, the guards would force all the rest of them to watch. And this one particular day, they had three executions lined up, and the two of them on either side were grown men, but the one in the middle was just a little innocent child. The picture was biblical. It was a lot like Golgotha, offenders on either side, but 
in the middle the picture of innocence. And after the hanging, the guards would always force the prisoners to walk right in front of the gallows as a warning against them to get close enough to the suffering to say, this will happen to you if you step out of line. And that day, as they walked past, the two men were deceased, but the boy was too light. He didn't weigh enough. And so he just hung there, kicking his legs and fidgeting his body still alive for more than a half hour. And Wiesel describes getting close enough to see that face, to see suffering that horrific at close range, and the man behind him whispering under his breath, but just loud enough for him to hear, where is God? And from within me, Wiesel writes, I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where hanging here from this gallows. You see, when he lived, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then when he died a criminal's death, one of the witnesses said, surely this man was the Son of God. He was connecting the dots. Oh my word. This, this is what God is like. Isaiah prophesied, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Both Luke and Matthew record Jesus identifying himself by these very words. There's much that Jesus leaves unclear, but on this bit he left no doubt. He called himself the suffering servant on behalf of all mankind, and he still shows up against the backdrop of our pain, our waiting, our grief, our absence. In our own suffering, we keep on finding the suffering servant. This is why the psychologist David Benner says, ultimately, we need a meaning strong enough to make suffering sufferable. This is the crucial test of any life meaning. It has to help us live life. For it to do that, it has to help us cope with suffering. In the last year, every, every meaning that everyone's living has been confronted by suffering. Does your meaning stand up? Does what you're living for make suffering sufferable? Because Jesus does because he dealt with suffering by suffering, because he made a way through suffering by suffering, because he looks me in the eye in the midst of my suffering by suffering. You see, the cross means that suffering is a place that God can be found, that God's method of recreation isn't protection, it's redemption, that he doesn't promise to protect us from every bit of pain, but he does promise to redeem every bit of pain. That's everything from paper cuts to funeral grief to long stretches of suffering. God builds the promised heavenly city at the end of the story on the shattered pieces of the fall from the beginning of the story and all throughout. The cross means that suffering is a place that God can be found, and resurrection means that suffering doesn't get the final word. It means there is, in fact, something death cannot take. The claim of resurrection is there's a kind of love that outlives death. I'm getting ahead of myself now. So for now, what you need to know is this, that resurrection is in fact about suffering, not a way to escape it, but a way to endure it, a story that makes suffering sufferable. Is there any other story that can do that? Resurrection is also about desire. 
Because we all have this internal, ap- eternal appetite within us. We long for adventure and meaning and romance and experience. But the rub of human desire is that we can't quench it. Right? That backpacking through Europe doesn't make me want the next adventure any less. It's an unquenchable appetite for, for adventure. That the sense of meaning you get from that promotion is flimsy enough to be completely dissolved by the comment that makes you feel insecure the next day. That the most romantic stories sometimes end in divorce and that we look forward to an experience for weeks only to get there and discover that my romanticizing of the future is always better than my experience of the present. There's a fire burning, a desire for a meaningful life, a desire for experience, a desire to matter within each one of us. And our spirituality is not so much what traditions we identify with or the moral guidelines that we live within or even the beliefs that we hold. Spirituality is what we do with that desire. It's what do you do with the fire that's burning within you. So we all have a spirituality regardless of the vocabulary that we use to describe it. And Ronald Rollheiser unpacks this by talking about the spirituality of Mother Teresa, Janis Joplin, and Princess Diana. Mother Teresa was a saint. She channeled all of her desire into one thing, loving God and serving him by caring for the poor. Janis Joplin, on the other hand, died of an overdose at age 27. But she wasn't so different from Mother Teresa. She was just as awake to her desire, just as alive to her spirituality. She just happened to channel that into drugs, booze, sex, and performance, things that ended up taking her life instead of filling her with it. Princess Diana, though, is the interesting one of the bunch because she did have a little Joplin in her. I mean, she's the most photographed woman in the world. She's widely admired for her beauty, and she uh, treated herself extravagantly. Her wardrobe famously cost millions. She uh, ate at the most expensive restaurants in the world's most expensive cities, and she had numerous publicized affairs with a particular weakness for men men with yachts in the Mediterranean. But she also had some Teresa in her because she's known for her moral and humanitarian convictions and she championed many just causes and devoted a lot of her free time and money to serve the world's poor. She even befriended Mother Teresa along the way. She was spiritual, but her spirituality was divided. Where the other two channeled theirs in a particular direction, she was channeling hers in divided directions in opposite ways. And there's a few Janis Joplins among us. There might even be one or two Mother Teresas, but the vast majority of us are some version of Diana, a disjointed, divided spirituality, trying to live a meaningful life without missing out on anything, trying to be a good human who leaves the world better than I found it while not denying myself any experience in this world, trying to interact critically and honestly with the privilege that I've inherited while also wanting to travel and live in a comfortable home and eat and drink according to my preferences and appear effortlessly but very intentionally fashionable. See, you can spend the rest of your life doing this careful dance with your own desire. Most of us do. And we all know intuitively, uh, by our own experience, that there are certain attempts at gratifying our desire that hurt, that hurt us and hurt others, that good desire misdirected hurts people. See, substance abuse is an attempt to satisfy a good desire, a desire for freedom and courage and pleasure, but substance abuse hurts people. It turns a thoughtful, lively person into a single-minded hunger that's always planning for the next experience, the next fix, the next drink. 
It hurts everyone it touches. Substance abuse destroys marriages, it ruins childhoods, and it dissolves friendships. But that's an obvious example, right? But if you go to more subtle desires, the same principle holds true. So take something like materialism, for example. Materialism is a good desire misdirected. It's a desire for beauty and confidence, but materialism hurts people. It turns me into a single-minded consumer because I thought these jeans looked amazing on Poshmark, but then I get them and they don't fit quite right. And so now I'm trying to resell them and then scavenge the internet for the next perfect pair. Or as soon as I got my apartment all mid-century modern, the vibe changed, now I want different stuff, right? And it hurts others. It hurts the East Asian women and children who are working an unjust wage in inhumane conditions in a textile factory also that I could get that t-shirt for 20 bucks instead of 30. And it hurts the nations where uh, resources are being overconsumed and taken to nations whose wardrobes are already overstuffed anyway. And it hurts you, who is forced to then live on this hamster wheel of insecurity that's never going to be resolved by the next purchase. You see, these things and others like them, they do not satisfy the deep appetites of our own souls, but what they will do is temporarily make us forget the hunger that's there altogether. When we satisfy our desires under our own control, it's always fast food that we're eating, right? If I'm hungry, that's my body saying, I need nourishment. And then if I have Taco Bell, I will not have nourished my body, but the hunger will go away. I'll forget that it's there altogether. I cover the desire rather than satisfy it. Good desire, misdirected, hurts people. And that's a point that's been universally agreed on throughout history. Understanding and getting free from that is the aim of every religion and philosophy and form of therapy and counseling session. And it's been named evil, dysfunction, brokenness, and insecurity. And the Bible mostly calls it sin. And does that word come with some baggage attached to it? Sure. But as the New York Times columnist David Brooks writes, if you want to talk about the deepest journey, you need words like sin. So whatever you call it, the concept of sin is undeniable. I like Ignatius of Loyola's definition. He says that sin is the refusal to believe that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. In other words, we take our desire into our own hands, form our own spirituality, and try to satisfy the deep needs of our own souls. But that really well-intentioned outlook always results in pain, not in wholeness. Good desires misdirected, right? They hurt people. There's this scene in the Brothers Karamazov when the wise old elder, Father Zosima, drops this line, hell is the suffering of being unable to love. The Apostle John said something a lot like that. We know that we pass from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. So the first tragedy of sin is that it prevents human beings from doing what we were made to do best, to love. Love is the evidence that we know God, and a lack of love is evidence that we don't. This is why Thomas Merton says, if we knew how much God loved us, there would be no sin. That would cure it all. The second tragedy is even worse than the first. Anyone who does not love remains in death. God is love. So to live apart from God is to live apart from love. It is death to our soul. Sin put a period on the end of a sentence that was meant to go on forever. It put an expiration date on you and me and everyone else and confronted us with that ultimate injustice we call death. Sin is a terminal problem. 
It is a terminal disease that has infected the whole of the human race. And that is why finally resurrection is about shame. Soren Kierkegaard takes a crack at defining sin as well. He says this, Sin is not wanting to be oneself before God. And that's the definition we encounter in Genesis chapter 3 in that famous story about the forbidden fruit. God created a world that was good in every sense of the word, and then Adam and Eve sunk their teeth into that one forbidden fruit from that one forbidden tree. And since then, the God that they took afternoon walks with, who they knew intimately, as intimately as they knew themselves, seems distant, hard to know, and even harder to trust. And also since then, we lost the ability to live in front of one another without putting on a performance. We're always subtly manipulating whoever that day's crowd is to think of us what we desire to be thought of. And that is what the whole Genesis forbidden fruit story is all about. It's our ability to live today without hiding. We're all born with this fire of desire burning inside of us, but we're also born with a bottomless well of inadequacy within us not wanting to be oneself before God. The equation underneath every human life is this unquenchable desire plus unshakable shame equals the human condition. Shame is different than guilt. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is something is wrong with me. Guilt makes us sorry. Shame makes us hide. The sociologist Alan de Baton says, we are all crazy in some way. The crucial question at the depth of every relationship is not, is he crazy? It is, what are the ways you are crazy? What parts of your life have been blocked by fear? How exactly do you self-destruct? And in what ways have you not been loved? Shame is a one-word summary from the parts of me that are blocked by fear, the patterns by which I self-destruct and all the ways I have not been loved. And the rest of the Bible, after this forbidden fruit bit, is just story after story of God's pursuing love. I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version of the whole 66-book compilation to save yourself a little bit of time. I got good news and bad news. The good news is that you are loved. You are loved right now without qualification and without restriction. You are loved unconditionally for who you are, loved in a way that you cannot lose. The bad news is that you're going to find that hard to believe and even harder to experience. That your instinct is going to forever be to drum up your own lovableness, to become lovable in some way that you can control and define, to become in your own eyes what you already are in God's. The good news is called grace. The bad news is what we call sin. Recently, I began seeing a counselor And if you've ever been to therapy or counseling of any kind, you'll know that you always go in with a presenting issue. And a presenting issue is just the terminology for whatever it is that landed you in a chair talking to a stranger that you're hoping can somehow fix you. My presenting issue was impatience, which sounds completely harmless. But the thing about impatience is it has to get expressed. And the way that impatience gets expressed in me is by anger. I'm a solid dad most of the time. I would even say above average. And then occasionally I snap. I uh, let something small throw me into a tantrum that's just as irrational as any tantrum thrown by my two or four-year-old. 
And a few months ago, I was riding the East River Ferry with my kids on a Friday afternoon. We weren't going anywhere. We were just <laughs> killing time. We were taking the ferry to Dumbo, riding scooters around for a minute, and getting back on the ferry and coming back home. This is parenting toddlers in New York City in COVID wintertime. And as we're coming back home, I had this phenomenal plan that I was going to effortlessly feed both of my children lunch while reading this book that I was completely engrossed in. Totally reasonable. And I'll spare you all the details, but that led to a series of mischievous acts by the kids and overreactions by dad. And eventually I got home and I flung the door of my apartment angrily against the wall and I threw my keys at the dish where they're supposed to go that was lying on the counter. And I started taking my two-year-old son Simon's coat off aggressively while he was crying. And then I looked up. And I'll never forget the expression on my wife's face when she was looking at me. That expression, a mixture of confusion and this maternal instinct to intervene and also fear. Fear looking at the man that she made vows to. That was the precise moment I knew I needed help. So I show up with my presenting issue. But that's never exactly why you're there, and the counselor knows that, and so every good counselor just kind of pokes and prods around until they hit some pressure point within you that unravels you, and that's when both you and they find out why you're actually there. See, I went looking for tools to have more healthy expressions of anger, and then on something like session three, I find myself sobbing in recounting something my dad said to me when I was 16 years old that I've never forgotten. See, Jesus is the great healer, but to heal you, he's first got to unravel you. He's got to find that place that, that unravels you and makes you lie still on the operating table. Luke's resurrection story, it singles out Peter. Did you notice that? The, the last verse of our teaching text says, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now, the last time Peter had saw Jesus, they were exchanging a glance across a courtyard. Peter, who had enjoyed the benefits of Jesus' inner circle for three years, denied even knowing him the second the tide turned. And Jesus told him it'd go down like that. If you just go two chapters prior to this, Luke records... Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. That's Peter's voice. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny three times that you know me. So Peter's warming his hands over a charcoal fire and denies the third time that he even knows him. And that's when the rooster crows. And that uh, audible sound triggers a memory back to the night before for both Peter and Jesus. And so Peter looks up from the prosecutor's bench and shoots his eyes across the courtyard to meet Peter's. And Peter looks up from the glowing red coals and shoots his eyes across the crowd to meet Jesus's. What's the expression on Jesus' face in that moment? Have you ever asked yourself that question? How does Jesus look at Peter in the midst of his denial? Is it I told you so? Or is it forgiven? Is it compassion? Or is it judgment? Is it cursing or is it blessing? How you answer that question will tell you everything you really believe about God. 
doesn't matter what you say you believe. What's the expression on Jesus' face? How you answer that question tells you what you really believe. Luke goes on. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. You see, we've all got presenting issues. And Jesus is the master counselor. He's just poking and prodding around until he finds the pressure point that unravels us. And Peter finally unravels. Jesus is the great healer, but to heal, he's got to get us to lie still on the operating table. It's me in the counselor's office, Peter in the courtyard. It's all the same. We all have to come undone in order to be healed. A few days later, Peter still couldn't sleep. He's just lying awake in the middle of the night. So he decides to go fishing. Just something to do while he waits for the sun to come up. And the Gospel of John tells us that he's fishing on the Sea of Galilee. That's the same sea where he first met Jesus. And he's taken out his own boat. That's the same boat that Jesus climbed onto uninvited and began to preach while everyone else remained on the land. And he, and he notices this man on the beach just as the sun begins to come above the horizon and says, Friend, have you caught any fish? Why don't you try throwing your nets to the other side? And he does it, and his nets began to tear because the catch was so big when he brought them in. That's the same miracle Jesus performed in Peter's life when he first called him. It's at that moment that he realizes that's Jesus on the beach. That's the resurrected rabbi on the beach. So he doesn't row the boat back in. He jumps out of the boat and swims all the way to shore, and Jesus is sitting there, and Jesus has made a charcoal fire just like the one Peter was warming his hands over in the courtyard before his last denial. Now, psychologists tell us that the sense of smell of all the five senses is the one that triggers our memory bank in our brain. That is why the smell of your grandmother's house triggers certain memories. That is why you slept in your 13-year-old boyfriend's t-shirt once when you were in middle school. And that is why maybe the smell of your late mother's perfume still brings tears to your eyes because smell triggers your memories. I wonder what rushed into Peter's imagination the second he smelled that charcoal. I was walking into Prospect Park a couple Saturdays ago when it was particularly warm, and from like two blocks away, I smelled it. Charcoal, it's a distinct smell. And I was flooded with summertime. I wonder what flooded Peter's mind when he was taken back to that moment of his denial. Jesus doesn't tell Peter anything. He has him sit down next to the fire and he asks him a question, like the master counselor. Peter, do you love me? He repeated the question three times, three questions for three denials, and it all crescendos in this message. Peter, you've seen yourself as you really are, but I've always known you as you really are. You've unraveled, and so now in this unraveled place, I need you to hear me say, I still choose you, I still trust you, and you're still the rock I want to build my kingdom on. It's a blessing in place of all the cursing Peter was doing to himself, and that is what the resurrection means for every last one of us. It means blessing replaces our self-cursing. Blessing is Jesus' response to the shame that we carry. You see, the credits roll on Luke's version of the resurrection story like this. When Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. He blessed them. 
We spend our whole lives trying to bless ourselves. We, we try to earn our own affirmation and get a well done from this or that person. We try to be seen, to be noticed, to be welcomed and wanted to drum up our own lovableness, as we've said, to be noble and to be admired. Inherent in the human condition is the incessant need to earn what we can only be given. And that leaves each one of us with a unique tailor-made cocktail of shame floating around inside of us. It's the lost son who wanders back onto the father's property with a plan. I'll come back and work as one of his hired servants. Work as one of his hired servants, that means I'll earn back the blessing that I lost. That's the instinctive response to shame. It's called religion. Religion is, I've messed up, so I'm going to go to God to make it right. I'm going to do all the right things and prove to him that I really mean it this time. Religion is trying to earn back what was lost by the same method that lost it in the first place. The resurrection of Jesus is not religion. It is an emphatic, universal blessing. A blessing for every last one of us. An announcement in the unique language that we can understand. A language that speaks to the self-destructive, fearful, wounded, unloved places in my heart. I see you. I love you. And I've shared everything with you. My perfect life and all of its consequences replaces your failure and all of their consequences. It's a free gift to anyone undone enough to unwrap it. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany. Bethany. The village of Bethany. That's where Jesus took them to bless them. Bethany's where the crowds chanted Hosanna. It's where Mary anointed Jesus with the costly perfume. It's where Jesus called Lazarus out of his own tomb. And I wonder if as Jesus was leading them there, not too far removed from those events, if the palm branches were still lying by the roadside from a few days prior. And I wonder if the smell of that pure nard might have still hung somewhere in the air from Mary's extravagant outpouring of perfume. And I wonder if a few strips of linen still lay outside Lazarus's tomb from his own grave clothes. When he'd led them out to the vicinity of Bethany. We all know Bethany. Bethany is the memory so painful that you feel the weight of shame return just by proximity to that place or that situation or that memory or that person. Bethany is the time God seems so close and so real, and those times feel a million miles away because of what I've experienced since. Bethany is my particular personal journey of belief and doubt, hope and loss, forgiveness and resentment, coping and hiding. Bethany is where Jesus first posed and still poses this question, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? See, the blessing of Jesus is so personal. He's the healer of the whole world, but he's also the healer of my personal world, <laughs> of my wounds, my thoughts, my failures, my fears, my pains, my past, my future, and even my present moment. When he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he got there, drug all the context of their personal stories and unique brands of disappointment into that moment, and right there, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. That day that I lost it on my two-year-old Simon, when my wife looked at me like I was a stranger, the day I saw myself as clearly as Peter saw himself in that courtyard and wept just as bitterly as he did, I put my kids to bed that night. 
And I lean down to pray for each one of them as I always do. And I always pray the same kind of stuff. But this night I pray different prayers. I lean, lean down and I put my head right against Simon's forehead. And I prayed, Jesus, somehow, please make me the dad this boy needs. And I got down to the bottom bunk on my knees and I laid my forehead against Hank's. And I said, Jesus, please, somehow, Make me the dad this boy needs. And then I got up and I started to walk out and I heard, Dad? Yeah, buddy? I'm confused. What is it? You already are the dad I need. Exactly like you are right now. Which I know sounds so cheesy. I know that I'm just some cheesy pastor and apparently one with a bit of a temper who's telling a cheesy story on Easter Sunday. But that's a real event in my life. And when someone else tells you a story like that, it can be cheesy and dismissible, but when that's your four-year-old absolving your shame like a priest in a confessional booth, then it's something different. The most gut-wrenching part of life on this side of eternity is that the people that we love the most are also the people that are most affected by our sin. It's that my sweet, innocent little four-year-old who I want to give the very best of myself to interacts more personally and painfully with my sin than any one of you ever will. The closer you get to me, the more my sin hurts you, and the same goes for you. And so when I'm carrying the weight of the world because there's a Grand Canyon-sized gap inside me between who I mean to be and who I actually am, between my intention and my action, and I am free-falling in that gap because today was one of the days that I saw myself and was terrified by what I saw, and in that moment, a child says to me, but Dad, Dad, you already are who I need you to be exactly like who you are right now, then it's not cheesy, it's blessing. It's walking to the vicinity of Bethany and hearing them lift up his hands and say, even this, even this, my grace can outrun. See, the resurrection of Jesus is this triumphant declaration that that is who God is, and that is his heart towards you. That's the expression on his face when he meets eyes with you across the courtyard in the moment of your shame. That he knows you inside and out. He knows your judgmental attitude and your selfish thoughts and your destructive patterns and your vices and your profound regrets. He knows the parts of you that are blocked by fear and the exact ways you self-destruct and all the ways that you haven't quite been loved. He's seen it all with perfect clarity. And in the midst of your shame, he lifts up his hands in blessing. Can you bear to believe that? Can you bear to believe that there might be a God that good just waiting to bless you? When Jesus pushed back the stone uh, from his own tomb a couple centuries ago on an otherwise ordinary morning, all shame, past, present, and future, mine, yours, his, and hers, all shame was swallowed up in this great tidal wave of blessing. That's what resurrection means. Can you bear to believe it? Because all who are unraveled by it get to experience it. Not in some future far off place, but here and now. So we'll land here. 
if all we do is reflect on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we find him to be really likable. He's winsome and charming and quite noble. But if resurrection is more than a metaphor, if it's more than a reflection, if it's an actual event, that makes Jesus dangerous. Because resurrection means my unquenchable desires can actually be quenched. And the bottomless well of shame that lives within me can be completely drained out. Resurrection is not some fairy tale that's set in a far off other world that's full of happily ever afters. It is set right here in this fallen world and it includes the terminal problems of the human race. It includes the constant gap that exists between who I intend to be, who I really mean to be, and who I actually am. It includes all of the wrong that I've inflicted on others and all the wrongs that I've been an innocent victim of, and it includes that ultimate injustice that we call death that inevitably waits every one of us. Resurrection is a story that includes all of those things because it's a story that's victorious over all of those things. Resurrection means hope. And I'm not talking about some fairy tale, distant escapism kind of hope. I'm talking about gritty, earthy, here and now kind of hope. I'm talking about wheat growing up among the weeds. That's where he's planted his kingdom. And so if resurrection is nothing more than a metaphor, just a way of saying that his life and teachings go on living in the internal lives of those who bought into his wisdom, then this is just like the life of Jesus is a great film that you can discuss with others over brunch. But if resurrection is an event, a reality, then Jesus is Lord and God. Jesus is Lord and God. And we fall at his feet in honor with a supernatural smile stretched across our faces. And we open our eyes in enchanted wonder because life that outlives death has invaded this place. That's how we receive his blessing. We just come undone again and again and again. It's the only way we receive his blessing. We let go. We fall on our knees in honor. We open our eyes in wonder. If that's not the God you know, I would just humbly but honestly say to you, he's too good to hold yourself together. He's too good to wait for another day. He's too good to put off. If you're standing at the edge and and you're tempted right now to jump, I would just say, man, if you want to swim, you got to jump. And those of us who know this God, we are certainly not people that have all of our moral quibbles sorted. We're definitely not people who have every intellectual question absolved. We're just people that stood at the edge and at one time we finally just got up the courage to jump and discovered that we are now swimming in an ocean of grace that we can never get out of. And so if the God I've been describing is not the God you know, I would just say, this is too good to hold yourself together. It's too good to put off for another day. It's too good to resist. Jesus, Jesus, we praise you. Jesus, we want to know you. Hmm. Jesus, give us the courage to come undone again today so that your healing and your love can get to those untouched places within every last one of us. 
And just as we're seated in this room and it's, you're seated at home on your couch or whatever, I just want to offer a couple of invitations. And the first is, is for those who are outside of this leap of belief. And I simply don't want to move on without giving you a chance to know him. Because I'm an absolute mess, as of course you know. But I know him. And so I'm so alive, and I want you to know that life. So if you don't know this God, and, and you're just like, yeah, that sounds all right to me, then I just invite you just wherever you're seated, whether you're at home, sitting around with friends, or you're in this room, just to, just to open up your hands in front of you. And it's just this really simple way of you saying to God, if that's who you are, then come on. You can just pray this simple thing and just say, God, I'm a mess and I can't fix it without you. So Jesus, will you flood my life with your life? Something like that. And then I want to give an invitation to the believing, to those of you who know this God. I think it's important that we have this day in the midst of what has been such a hard year, a year plus, and will continue to be hard in the days to come. Because I think today we remember that our hope does not lie in a particular set of circumstances or in a future place. Our hope lies in a person. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus and only Jesus is worthy of our affection and our praise. Jesus and only Jesus can satisfy our desire. Jesus and only Jesus can absolve our shame. Jesus and only Jesus can hold the weight of our hope. I got to get out of here. I'm going to preach myself emotional. Jesus and only Jesus. So I've just been, I'm thinking this right now in this moment about how foolish it must have looked on that resurrection day when there was this tiny band of people dancing around in a graveyard like a victory had been won. And how foolish it must have been when King David marched into the city wearing the the undergarment of a priest and danced the whole way in and how we've inherited this story where we always look foolish at first and victorious in the end. And we're sitting in a room in chairs spaced really far out from each other. And I have no idea how you're interacting with anything I'm saying because there's a mask covering your face. And how foolish it would look to celebrate in the midst of this moment like we have victory that outlives this life, and yet we do. And so I wonder if we could just celebrate the victory of Jesus in a place like this and if we might feel foolish at first and victoriously alive in the end. So we stand together, we celebrate together. And let's worship Jesus.